Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. This week on Southcrest Live with Dr. David Wilson, we continue our Sermon on the Mount study series. In chapter 5 of Matthew, Christ addresses the nature of the Old Testament law, declaring that he has come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Does that mean the law is still in effect for Christians? And if so, how would commands given to ancient Israelites apply to us today? For the answer, turn to verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5, as we hear, is the Old Testament still relevant? From Pastor David Wilson. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 5. We are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the first 12 verses we called blessed, the Beatitudes. And now we're in a section that I've, I've entitled uh, Tough Truth. Because Jesus is about to say some tough things. And we're going to look at it no matter how difficult it is. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away... One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand this clearly. I pray that you would help people to see that it matters how we live and that your truth is still truth. And so we ask that you speak to us through your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Even little children understand that there are some things you better get right and you need to understand to be true. For example, in an article written, Great Truths About Life That Little Children Have Learned, here are some of those truths. When your mom is mad at your dad, don't let her brush your hair. (laughs) If your sister hits you, Don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. (laughs) Never ask your three-year-old brother to hold a tomato. (laughs) Puppies still have bad breath even after eating a Tic Tac. (laughs) And finally, never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. You know, there's some things you you better get right if you're going to be rightly related to God in this life and in the life to come. Sermon on the Mount begins by telling people how to get right with God. The first 12 verses speak of the character of believers or the, the way that we become believers in Christ. The next few verses, 13 through 16, talk about our function as believers. We are the salt and the light. 
And now beginning in verse 17, it talks about the foundation that is there in order for us to have the qualities needed as believers, in order for us to be the salt and light. It talks about the Word of God, the Bible. You see, God's Word is the only standard of righteousness and of truth. It's the only one that teaches us that. A lot of people say the Bible is just a book and that it's got a lot of errors and it's got a lot of mistakes and that it was just written by a bunch of men. But that's not what Jesus said. And if you're a child of God, you should have the same attitude about the Bible that Jesus has because we're followers of him. Now, Jesus spoke about this, and if you look at this passage and, and quickly read it, a lot of people get it wrong or they make, they make mistakes thinking, what, what about the Old Testament? Is it still relevant? I mean, are we not supposed to eat certain foods, and are we supposed to meet on Saturday, the Sabbath? Are we, what about the Old Testament? I mean, the, even one of our presidents several years ago quoted part of the Old Testament in a, in a mocking way, saying, if you're really going to follow the Bible, then we need to stone all the teenagers who are rebellious. Well, none of us would be here if that happened. But the fact is, do we still take them out to the gates of the city and stone them? No. So what part of the Old Testament is relevant? What part isn't? Is it still in play? There are some people who would say, well, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Or we have the New Testament. We're just going to follow the New Testament. Is it still relevant? The, the answer is yes. First of all, I believe Jesus points out the primacy of of scripture, the importance of it, the preeminence of it. We continually hear today that because times have changed, the Bible no longer fits our world, but that's not the problem. It's not that the Bible does not fit the world. The problem is the world does not fit the Bible because the Bible does not change. The world is in a state of flux and change, not for the better, but headed away from God. Now, real Christianity is determined how you relate to the Word of God. If you don't believe the Word of God, you can't be a Christian because the Word of God tells you that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you don't believe the Bible, you can't be saved. So how can you say, I follow Jesus Christ and then discredit his Word? You cannot do that. Jesus did not do that. In fact, here we see when Jesus spoke, I believe he spoke about the Scripture's authority. He used the definite article in verse 17. I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Now, the fact that he put the in front of it is telling us that he's speaking about the law of God. When you see the word law in the scripture, the Jewish people would think of it in one of four ways. You might, in a limited way, be talking about the Ten Commandments, the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. A little broader than that would be the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament. They would speak of the law of God. That was a second way. A third way was even a little more broad. We speak of the entire Old Testament, the law of God. But there was a fourth way 
that was the most common of that day, and it would have been the law as interpreted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the problem with it was that the law of the scribes and Pharisees was added to. I mean, Jesus even said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, that the Pharisees have invalidated the word of God for the sake of their tradition. Let me explain that to you. Let's say that, well, I don't have to say it. This is what they did. They, they took remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay? They said you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, that in itself is okay. But then they added to that that you don't even carry a burden on the Sabbath. Now, what is a burden? What is a burden? Well, they interpreted that too. For example, they decided that a burden is food equal enough to to the weight of a fig. Or wine enough to mix in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, Honey enough to put on a wound, oil enough to anoint a small member of the body, water enough to moisten eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on. Now, they spent time debating on whether a tailor had committed a sin if he walked out on the Sabbath with a needle stuck in his robe, or if you moved a lamp from one place in the room to another place in the room, you have worked on the Sabbath. Today, when you go to Israel on the Sabbath day, there are certain elevators that automatically go every floor up and down so that they can get on an elevator and not have to push the button and work. Some of the strict interpreters believe that wearing an artificial leg or using a crutch on the Sabbath constituted work. They argued whether or not a parent could lift the child on the Sabbath. They decided that to heal or to give medicine to somebody on the Sabbath was work unless they were dying or a grave situation. And in that case, they only treated you enough to keep you alive so they could give the rest of it off of the Sabbath. Now, this is the kind of laws, the kind of stuff that that, that became the essence of the law to most of the Jewish people. So when they said the law, this is the kind of stuff they're thinking about because they think of the scribes and the Pharisees that were keeping meticulously all of this. But Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, indicating the law of God, not the ones that had been interpreted and added to. Folks, we have a tendency to add to, don't we? I mean, let's just say, let's just say it. I mean, I remember, I remember growing up as a kid that somewhere in the Bible, I really believed that you were supposed to have church at 11 o'clock on Sunday. (laughs) And a lot of the members believe that it's supposed to have been over by 12 (laughs) o'clock. The law and the prophets was understood to refer to the actual scriptures themselves, the Old Testament, not the rabbinical interpretations. 
The foundation of the Old Testament law was given in the Pentateuch, and the prophets and the psalmists and other inspired writers expounded and preached and applied that law from the Pentateuch. Jesus spoke of its authority. Now, Jesus also, in that statement in verse 17, mentions what I call the Savior's accomplishment. I did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. The Old Testament is complete. It is intended as it, God wanted it to be. It's perfect. And the picture in the Old Testament is of a king and his kingdom that's coming. And we know that Jesus is the king that came to fulfill every detail. Five times in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus, that the theme of the Old Testament is Jesus. Right here in this passage in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Luke chapter 24, verse 44, John 5, verse 39, and in Hebrews 10, verse 7. And the primary meaning of fulfill, when he said, I came to fulfill it, means to complete what is already present. Something's here, I've come to complete it. Now, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by being its fulfillment. Jesus didn't just teach about righteousness and exhibit righteousness. Jesus is the righteousness of God. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He didn't teach about it and exemplify it. He is the fulfillment. He came as divine righteousness. Now, I'm one of those that believes that the law could be divided into three ways. Some don't agree with me, some do, but I'm just going to tell you what I believe. That the, the law could be divided into three ways, the Old Testament law. First was the moral law. God gave that for all people to live. The Ten Commandments is the moral law. It's part of it. More morality. We know what morality is. God gave a definition for marriage. That's part of morality. That's for all people to live. And by the way, it is between a man and a woman. God gave a definition of male and female. He did not say, I'm going to give you certain biological parts and you can decide what you want to be. He didn't say that. He said, you're either a boy or a girl. And if you're a boy, you're going to live like a boy. If you're a girl, you're going to live like a girl. The moral law. The law was to regulate behavior for all people. Jesus fulfilled the moral law by living a perfect, righteous life. In fact, Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He did not sin. Consequently, he could die on the cross for the penalty of our sin. The wages of sin is death. Now, another part of the law was the judicial law. You see, God picked Israel. He chose Israel to be his chosen nation. Now, incidentally, I believe the Jews are still his chosen people. However, God gave them certain laws to separate them as a chosen nation to live differently from all the pagans around them. And that's why he gave laws relating to agriculture and to settling disputes, to certain diet, to certain cleanliness, to certain dress. And, they, and they, these things were special standards by which his chosen people were to live before the Lord and apart from the world. God wanted Israel to be his representatives in the world. And sometimes they did. 
but a lot of times they didn't. What was the ultimate apostasy of Israel? When they rejected the Messiah. When they rejected the Messiah, stay with me. Y'all already look like you're bored. Stay with me. When they rejected the Messiah, God no longer was going to use Israel to be his representation in the world. I believe one day that God's going to fulfill the promises he made to Israel. I believe it in the millennial reign of Jesus. I believe that he will rule, he will rule from Jerusalem. I believe that, that the, the nation of Israel is going to finally recognize Jesus as the Messiah. I believe all that. But for right now, God's not using Israel to reach the world, is he? In fact, they were scattered abroad, and until 1948, they didn't even have a country again. The judicial laws that God set for Israel to be a nation to follow him were done away with. Jesus fulfilled. He came as the Messiah to them. They rejected him. The judicial laws regarding Israel, those aren't relevant to you and me. We're not the chosen nation of God set apart in the world. As believers, we are a chosen people now. We're grafted into God's family. We are the ones being used. We have not replaced Israel as his chosen people, but we are children of God grafted in. Do you, am I making sense? Thank you. If you're going to get sleepy, at least nod. Don't, don't fall over. The, the, the third part of the law was the ceremonial law. You see, God said, this is the way I want you, Israel, to worship. When Jesus died, he fulfilled the ceremonial law. Sacrifice was at the heart of the Old Testament worship. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He brought sacrifice to an end. No longer do we offer the blood of bulls and goats and so forth and sheep. And from Genesis to Malachi, it pointed to Christ and is fulfilled for Christ by Christ. For example, Aaron was the first and foremost high priest in the Old Covenant. He can't compare to the high priest in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ. You see, Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle. Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle. Aaron entered once a year. Christ once for all time. Aaron entered beyond the veil. Christ tore the veil in two. Aaron offered many sacrifices. Christ only one. Aaron sacrificed for his own sin. Christ for the sins of all people. Aaron was a temporary priest. Christ is an eternal one. Aaron offered the blood of bulls. Christ his own blood. Aaron was fallible. Christ was infallible. Aaron was unchangeable. Christ, Aaron was changeable. Christ was unchangeable. Aaron was continual. Christ is final. Aaron's sacrifice was imperfect. Christ was perfect. Aaron's priesthood was insufficient. Christ is all sufficient. Even the tabernacle and the temple don't compare to Jesus. The tabernacle and temple had a door. Christ is the door. They had a brazen altar. He is the altar. They had a labor, but he himself cleanses from sin. They had many lamps that continually needed filling. He's the light of the world that shines 
eternally. They had one, they had bread that had to be replenished, but Christ is the eternal bread of life. They had incense, but Christ's own prayers of sin for his saints. They had a veil, but his veil was his own body. They had a mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. Even the offerings don't compare. The burnt offering spoke of perfection. Christ was perfection incarnate. The meal offering spoke of dedication. Christ was wholly dedicated to the Father. The peace offering spoke of peace, but Jesus is our peace. The sin and trespass offering spoke of substitution. He is our substitute. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. So you don't need it anymore. You do not need those ceremonies. We don't offer sacrifices. We don't do it that way. Because now in the new covenant, and Jesus said at the communion, in the new covenant of my blood, my blood is the new covenant. Now we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So folks, when you go to the Old Testament, you have to determine, was this a judicial law given only to Israel? Was this a ceremonial law given only to Israel? Or was this a moral law given to all people? Because the moral law of God is still in play. We're still supposed to live the moral law. It hasn't changed. So Jesus fulfilled that. That was his accomplishment. The, ju the judicial and ceremonial law were fulfilled and set aside. They ended at the cross. The moral laws fulfilled by Christ is still in effect and being fulfilled through his disciples. He didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. He did fulfill it. Now, he also mentions what I call the permanence of Scripture in verse 18 and 19. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is a jot? and a tittle. Now the word jot translates the word, the Greek word iota. Have you ever said, I don't give one iota about it? That's where it came from. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew. Actually, iota translates the word that would be used yod in the Hebrew, the smallest letter. The smallest letter of the law will not pass away. Moral law. Now, until it is fulfilled, that's what I'm saying. He and Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial and the judicial law. And then the word tittle really speaks of the smallest stroke in a Hebrew letter. Almost like when you dot an I, that's a small stroke. Or I guess you could think of, a, think of a, the letter Q, the capital letter Q. It's an O with a little small mark on it. What Jesus is saying is, the law, none of it's going to pass away till it's been fulfilled. Now, stay with me. Judicial law has been fulfilled. Ceremonial law has been fulfilled. The judicial law, well, I'm not going to go there. This is one of those sermons, if I chase any rabbit, I'm not going to have time. Jesus never said or did anything that would ever bring an ounce of doubt on the word of God. 
In fact, this is probably one of the more clear, absolute statements of Scripture that is verbally inerrant, totally without error in the original form in which God gave it. And the reason is the Lord never changes and his law never changes. Now, you can change the Constitution. You can amend it. You can annul an amendment. You can do all kinds of things. But you cannot repeal or amend the truth of God's Word. It's permanent. God said it stands. Some Christians claim today that because grace covers our sin and our offenses, that there's no need to bother about holy living. After all, I'm not under law. I'm under grace. You're not under the ceremonial law. You're not under the judicial law of Israel. You are under the moral law of God. And because by God's grace, you want to follow God's truth. He said there's a negative and a, and a positive. The consequences of the law depend on the person's response to it. Now, the Greek word break in verse 19, whoever breaks one of these commandments, the word literally means to cut loose or to release or to dissolve. It, it has the idea of invalidating part of God's word or making it void or setting yourself loose from it. But that doesn't happen today, does it? No, not at all. After all, God didn't really mean marriage between a man and a woman. God didn't really mean that this and that, and that adultery was sin. God didn't really mean now that you, you can have sex before marriage. God didn't mean all of that. It's all changed. I'm under grace. I can live like I want. You want to know what's wrong with the generation we live in today? In the 21st century, William Damon, the director of the Stanford University Center on Adolescence, said this, there has never in the history of a civilized world been a cohort of kids that is so little affected by adult guidance and so attuned to a peer world. He's exactly right. Too few adults, too few parents, too few men and women of God are obeying the Bible as they should and teaching it to their children. They just say, well, I'm going to let them learn on their own. That's the church's job. We'll send them and let the church teach them. Let me tell you something, folks. You need to live out your Christianity. You need to live out at home your morality because your kids are going to follow you. Really? No wonder young people are confused today. I heard about a person on the college campus, a student, had a sign, uh, one of those big lapel buttons, B-A-I-K, all capital letters, B-A-I-K. Somebody said, what does that sign mean? What does that button mean? And the student looked at him and said, man, don't you realize it means, boy, am I confused. <laughs> and they said, wait a minute, confused begins with a C, not a K. He said, my man, you have no idea how confused I am. <laughs> That's what happens when we don't model truth and we don't teach truth. That's not a, that, that not only brings confusion, but it brings outright corruption. Y'all know what the letters FBI stands for? Federal Bureau of Investigation. We need FBI Christians, full Bible intelligence. 
And that means that when we teach our children, we teach them. You know, when they take, when they uh, recruit an FBI agent, they teach them how to spot counterfeit money. How do you do that? Do they study all the counterfeit money? No. They study the real thing. They study the real currency to see so that when they see counterfeit, they can tell the difference. Well, moms and dads and parents and people, we need to be teaching our children and our, and our youth the truth so that when they're out here in these universities where the Dr. Wigglejaw is going to tell them some kind of nonsense, they can see it for what it is. Not all professors are bad. Why do I, I don't mean, I'm not even going to, I'm going to quit apologizing. Those of you who are Christians and are professors, you're, I'm not talking to you. You're Dr. Truth Tellers, not Wigglejaw. <laughs> the positive response is that kingdom citizens are to uphold every part of, part of God's moral law in their living and in their teaching. Because God's law is reflection of his character. And we are his children. We are to reflect his, his character. Let me move on. Jesus also alludes to the purpose of Scripture. Now, verse 20, interesting. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm reminded of what Warren, Warren Wiersbe said about the Bible. He said, the Bible teaches us what is right what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were, were the guys that, that studied, recorded, interpreted, and often taught Jewish law. And so their interpretation of the Old Testament is what I'm going to call redefined righteousness. It was very self-centered now, if there's anything that would have blown the minds of those people sitting up there listening to Jesus preaching, this would have been it. Because the scribes and Pharisees were known to be so religious. In fact, there was a Jewish saying that said, if only two people go to heaven, one will be a scribe, the other one will be a Pharisee. Because you talk about religious and rigid and reformed, and they, were, they competed with one another about how rigid and strict they could keep their religion. On the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law, they added 284 more commands. They added 365 prohibitions. Don't do this. They added 1,521 amendments. In order to make sure they wouldn't take God's name in vain, they never mentioned the name of God. If they were walking out in public, they would walk with their heads down so they wouldn't be tempted to not look at a woman the wrong way, to look at a woman the wrong way. They, they def didn't want to defile the Sabbath, so they outlawed 39 activities that might be construed as work. They distorted the teachings of God. They had taken the formula for salvation and made a bunch of do's and don'ts. And the problem was they were more interested in their religion than they were being righteous. Paul, who was a Pharisee before he was saved, Saul, then became Paul. He understood the problem because in Romans 10, verse 3, he said, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone who believes. You see, their standard, if, if Jesus said, in order to go to heaven, you've got to be, your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees, they would have thought, well, nobody can be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. But here's what's wrong with their redefined righteousness. First of all, it was based on external instead of internal. Which meant they had little or no consideration for motives and attitudes. Jesus addresses this in the coming weeks. It's going to be tough truth. Let me give you an example. Let's use the illustration speed limit out here on the loop 65. Okay? You're out here on the loop. You look down at your speedometer. You're going 70. But then all of a sudden, a car passes you doing about 90, and then a big semi passes you and with such speed that it sort of pulls you over to the middle a little bit. And, and you're wondering, well, how come nobody is following the sign? The sign says 65. But you see, laws are lifeless words that are on statute books. Now, what happens when you're driving, even if you're doing the speed limit, and you see a patrol car? I know what you do. Everybody lets off the gas. You may be, you may be doing 65. You, you still let off the gas. And as nice as policemen are, they cannot make you love the speed limit. The power behind their authority can enforce the law. But why do you drive the speed limit? I'll tell you why I drive it, because I don't want a ticket. I don't like the speed limit. It's always too slow. Always. And for those of you who don't drive the speed limit, you need to get off the road. <laughs> if it's 65, go 65, not 55, not 45. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. But the fact is, we, can't, we don't love the law. We obey the law because we don't want to be penalized. All of these laws, there was, no, there was no love in here. They weren't serving God. It was all external, nothing internal. Their righteousness was also partial instead of perfect. It fell way short of God's righteousness. Even if you and I can live the most perfect life that we can create on our own, it will not even come close to the righteousness of a holy God. I got amused at Sarah Watson who said, my cousin-in-law told me that his ancestors had to leave England for stealing sheep. They went to Holland but had to leave for practicing their religion. So they came to America where they could steal sheep and practice their religion simultaneously. <laughs> we, we have our own little sets of laws that we like. There's some of them we like. I mean, there's some we're not going to commit, we don't think. Jesus is going to blow that out of the water when he gets to the attitude of the heart. But the problem was that even if you lived up to all of the rules that you've made up, it's far from perfect. Our standard of righteousness does not compare with God's. It was also tasks instead of transformation. It's similar to what I've already said, but they took biblical terms, redefined them to suit their own human perspectives and philosophy. People are doing that today. 
God didn't really mean that that was sin. He's, after all, we're in the age of grace now, and, and he didn't really mean the same and, and so forth and so on. But I want to tell you, the problem with tasks is that it becomes a burden. It reminds me of a story of a man at DFW Airport. He, his watch broke. He couldn't find a clock. He didn't know what time it was. He didn't want to miss his next flight. So he just walked up to a total stranger walking down the, the hallway and said, sir, could you at least tell me what time it is? The stranger set down his suitcase. He said, sure. And he looked at his, his watch and he said, it's exactly 509. The temperature outside 73 degrees. It's supposed to rain tonight. The humidity is 93%. The barometer is 29.14 and falling. In London, the sky is clear. The temperature is 38 degrees Celsius. In Singapore, it's cloudy. 70% chance of rain. There'll be a full moon tonight here in Dallas. And the man said, your watch said all of that? <laughs> yes, sir. Sure did. I invented this watch, and I can tell you there's no more, there's no more other fancy timepiece than what I have right here. And this was several years ago. The man said, mister, I want to buy that watch. I'll give you $2,000 cash right now for it. The man said, no, it's not for sale. It's a gift. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'll give you $4,000. I've got cash for it. And the man said, mister, I can't sell it. I, get, I plan to give it to my son for his 21st birthday, and I really invented it for him. And the man said, look, I'll give you $10,000, and I've got the money right here. And he pulls out $10,000, and the man said, $10,000, mister, this watch is yours. And the man that was absolutely elated, he paid the stranger, took the watch, put it on his wrist, said, thank you so much, and turned to leave. And the stranger said, wait, 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 wait a minute. He picked up those two big suitcases. He says, don't forget the batteries. <laughs> the problem with rules and regulations is that you think I've got it made, but you've always got this baggage you're carrying around that you can't get rid of because there's been no transformation of your life. It also, they focused on rules instead of a relationship. You see, when you're right in your own eyes, when you have fulfilled the rules in your own eyes, you see no need for repentance or mercy or grace or salvation. And there's so many people today who are trying to earn their way to heaven when God said, look, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You're not even going to come close. But that's the righteousness that was been redefined today. There are people redefining it. Last year when we were in Israel, we were going up on the Temple Mount. When you, there's a little bridge walkway that takes you up on the Temple Mount. You can look down as you're going, and right beside you is the Wailing Wall. It's pretty famous. You've seen it. It's as close as the Jews can get to the original temple site because they're not allowed up on the, or they're afraid if they walk up on the temple mount that they might accidentally cross the Holy of Holies. Plus the Muslims have their mosque up there. They don't want any Jewish people up there. It's a big mess. But I asked our guide one day, I saw all of these people down here praying. I saw the, the Orthodox Jews standing there and praying and they're, and they're doing this to concentrate. And then in the restrooms, you see all kinds of utensils to wash your hands and do it in a certain way. And, and, I, and I asked our guide, who's now a Christian, I said, these guys, they can't do sacrifices like they did in the temple in, the, in their way. How do they atone for their sin? And he simply said, they do the best they can and hope that it's enough. 
And I wanted to cry down to them and say, guys, it's already been paid for. It's been taken care of. The price has been paid. You don't have to try to earn it anymore. But there will be people sitting in churches today who are trying to earn it. Some of you are sitting in here. Some of you are listening by way of the venue or the online or on television. You are watching and you're thinking, you know, if I could just get good enough, then God would take me. I'm going to tell you, that's never going to happen. Because God doesn't take people who are good enough. God takes people who repent of their sin and understand that they'll never be good enough and they come to God in repentance and ask him to forgive them and trust Jesus as the righteous payment for their sin and give their life to him and then God makes something beautiful out of your life. He's in the salvage business. The purpose of the Bible is to share with us redeeming righteousness, salvation. You see, the scripture tells you the truth. It doesn't say you have to hope. It says, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. The righteousness that God requires, <laughs> it leaves the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees in the dirt, in the dust. Jesus said, and see, that would have, they would have not believed it. They would have said, well, there's no way we can be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus said, but you've got to be. And the only way you can be, he didn't say the scribes and Pharisees going to make it. He was using that as an example to say, there's no way you're going to make it without God's forgiveness and salvation. And today, you and I sit here redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And just like the choir saying, only one man could die on the cross. Only one could be resurrected. Only one could save our soul. It was Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I don't know how to make it any more clear. You do not have to join Southcrest. You don't have to be a Baptist to be saved. But you must repent of your sin, asking God to forgive you, realizing you're separated from him. You can't get saved until you know you're lost. And if you're self-righteous and earning your salvation, you don't know you're lost. Asking God to forgive you Realizing that Jesus paid it all, rose again, you commit your life to him. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Pastor David. In verses 17 through 20 of Matthew 5, Christ paints a picture of the primacy and continued authority of the Mosaic law. We learn that the law can be classified as judicial, ceremonial, or moral, and that the moral law is still in effect for believers today. We also discovered that the scripture is not only meant to last forever, but is also unchanging. And as we explored the purpose of Scripture, we also saw the contrast between the artificial 
redefined righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the authentic redeeming righteousness that brings salvation. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Be sure to catch our next installment of the Southcrest Live podcast. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.